You can have a seat if you want to turn in your Bible. You can leave that there. You good? Uh, this morning, we're starting a series going through the book of Exodus. Uh, if you want to turn there, you can. If not, the words will be on the screen. Uh, next week, it's going to be Father's Day. And so as a special treat to you, I'm going to bring my dad in and we're going to preach together, which could be really awesome. Or it could be just a train wreck. One of the two. But either way, you want to be here for that. Um, and next week, we'll be having some other Father's Day stuff as well. So that's next Sunday. This morning, though, uh, Exodus 1 is where we're starting. And so let's start uh, with just reading Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Iskar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The total number, number of people born to Jacob was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and that whole generation. But the Israelites were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And all that credibility you've built up with your old boss is gone. And now you get a new boss and it's just terrible. And the story of Genesis, Genesis ends. Joseph has done a great thing for Pharaoh and then Exodus starts and it tells a story. And then there was a new Pharaoh who forgot everything. Now, I don't care how many Saturdays you've put in. I don't care how much extra work you've done. You haven't saved the world, which is exactly what Joseph has done. I mean, what Joseph has done, it's like Will Smith in Independence Day. He's gone up and he's taken out the aliens, okay? He is like Bruce Willis in Armageddon. He's got on a spaceship. He's gone up, drilled into a, 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 like a big asteroid and saved the world. This is like Rocky in Rocky Four beating Ivan Drago, saving the world from going into, leaving the Cold War into nuclear war, destroying humanity. Are you with me now? That's what's going on with Joseph. And you've never done anything like that, but Joseph has, and yet there is a new Pharaoh who forgot everything he's done. And so all the credibility he's built up, it's out the window. And so what happens? Starting in verse 8, we pick back up in Exodus 1, where what happens is this. The Pharaoh said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them or they will increase and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramses for Pharaoh, but the more they... Uh, were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless, imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks they imposed on them. So Pharaoh realizes there's this growing group of people who are not his people and they're getting stronger. And he's scared of the one thing that everyone in power is terrified of, losing power. And so he's operating in fear. Now, some people who study brains, 
brainologists or whatever they're called talk about the rat brain. Like when you are in fear, you're making decisions, not with your entire brain, but just with that one part of your brain that's just trying to keep you alive. And it seems that no good decision is ever made out of the rat brain. No good decision ever seems to be made when you're acting out of fear. And that's exactly what Pharaoh's doing. I'm afraid that I'm going to lose power. So what should we do? And he starts the first of his three-part plan that he goes through of how he's going to stop the Israelites from growing. The first is, well, we're not going to let them grow. They're not going to have more kids. They're not going to get bigger if we make them work harder. And then they're not going to be fruitful and multiply. Pharaoh doesn't know one thing about men is they're never too tired to reproduce. So that doesn't work. And so he has to go to step two. Step two is he's now going to tell the midwives that whenever a boy is born, get rid of it. Kill it. Which in a patriarchal society, it's great to be a man in just about all situations, unless when your enemy is trying to get rid of your nation, and then the boys are the ones that are killed, not the girls. But the midwives know that this can't be right, and so this is what happens. The midwives come back to Pharaoh and say this from verse 19. Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptians' women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Now, the midwives know this isn't actually true, but they tell Pharaoh, yeah, we, we can't get rid of the boys because they don't even wait for us to have these babies. And it's kind of a dig at the Egyptians from the Israelites. And so that's not working. So Pharaoh then says, okay, can't make them work harder, can't have the midwives get rid of the boys. So now everyone is going to do this. And this is from verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every boy that is born to the Hebrews, you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. So Pharaoh says, everyone is commanded to kill every boy Israelite that's born. So the moral of the story is, if you ever get a promotion at work, make sure your boss puts in writing, otherwise they're going to try to kill your kids. That's the moral of exit. No, that's not it at all. Okay, the story of Exodus was recently told on the silver screen. Our friend Ridley Scott created a movie, directed it, and had Christian Bale star in it. Did anyone ever see that movie that came out last year? Anyone? Okay. Two people saw it. Awesome. Monica, Tim. All right, the rest of you, get on your phones, Google it, watch it right now. No, I'm kidding. Don't do that. Now, the weird thing is, like, in my business, I feel like I should be excited every time, like, they take a Bible story and put it on the silver screen. Like, I feel like I should be, like, the first one there, but I never really like going to watch the Bible movies, which, obviously, everyone else besides you, too, didn't want to see it either. Because, for me, it's like, there is a book. Like, I know how the story is supposed to go. I know what's going to happen at the end. The ocean's going to do this, and it's going to come back and do that. And that's how the story is going to And the same thing with the Noah thing. Like, I knew, again, there's going to be a lot of water. It's going to do this, and then it's going to do that. And a couple of people were going to be alive. Everyone else is going to die. Like, I know how the story is supposed to go. And so I sit there with, like, my pocket protector out going, well, that's not right, and that's not right. And I don't do that just with, like, Bible movies. I do it with, like, all movies that like I've watched, or excuse me, that I've read the book before, right? Have you done that? Like you read a book and then you went to see it in the movie and you're like, oh, that's not right. I mean, you've done that, right? Kevin told me he did that uh, with the Twilight things. And I, I mean, that's, it's normal. Like you've seen it, like the movie Unbroken. Anyone read the book Unbroken? One of the best books I've read in years. I love the book, but I had no interest in seeing the movie. Because I read the book, I know how the story ends. Because then you watch the movie and you go, that's, 
that's not the choice I would make. That's not the right thing to do. And so you start critiquing because everyone who's telling a story has to make choices. Everyone, including a, a director of a movie and including the people who write the Bible, they're all making choices how they're going to tell the story. Now, Ridley Scott, when he told his story, his version of the Exodus story, he creates these extra side plots that are going on. There's a weird thing with, Mo, with, uh, with Moses and his wife and her having more faith than him, which is an interesting story. It's not in the Bible, but it's an interesting story. There's a weird thing about like Moses gets a concussion and that's how he sees the, the burning bush. Interesting idea, not in the Bible. And then the main thing about the movie that Ridley Scott directed is that you have brother versus brother conflict. You have Moses against the new Pharaoh who was his adopted brother. They grew up hand in hand. They were best buds. They had matching swords as every good set of brothers do. And then eventually now they're at odds with each other and they're fighting, which is an interesting story like brother versus brother one's leading one nation one's leading the other and they're fighting against it's a great story it's just not exodus's story the story that ridley scott says is brother versus brother but the bible it's not about any brothers see in in the movie it's the development of moses that's central in the book of exodus moses is a minor character it's always about god God is the central character. And Moses comes along, he's part of it, but the central part is not about Moses, but the God of Moses, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Pharaoh, it's a little bit confusing because Pharaoh to us seems like a person, but to Egyptians, a Pharaoh was actually a God. And so when you have Pharaoh as a main character, it's not Pharaoh as a person, but Pharaoh as a deity who is making a claim against God's rightful place as the true God. Because it's not about a minor character. It's about the God of Moses. But what Ridley Scott does when he tells his story, it reminds us of a common thing that we all seem to do. And we take minor characters and elevate them into being the major character. One of the things we often do is we elevate what is a secondary character and say that is the central piece. Now, I don't often like feel comfortable with the way people today typically talk about the devil. It seems like when people today talk about, it makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable because it's often a guise for people to not take responsibility for their own actions and instead they blame it like on some cartoon character with a pitchfork and red spandex. And so it makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. But one of the good things about talking about the idea of evil, like it is this one person personified, is that it reminds us of one thing, that the person that you see in front of you, no matter what they've done or how they've wronged you or how they've frustrated you, that they are not the ultimate enemy. It reminds you that there is someone else bigger, that there's something else bigger than the person you see right in front of you. Paul will, years later after the story of Exodus, write that our battle is not against flesh and blood. That no matter how awful your ex is, no matter how terrible they are, no matter how much they make you feel like you're living in hell, they are not the one who run hell. And no matter how frustrating your boss is and no matter how rude she is to you, when you're reminded that your battle is not against flesh and blood, it reminds you that no matter how bad they are, they're not the ultimate enemy. And no matter how much your spouse frustrates you or your in-laws or this person or that person, they are not the ultimate enemy. 
There's a saying that's been attributed to Plato, or at least I'm going to do it right now. Uh, It says, be kind for everyone you meet is encountered in their own battle. Be kind to everyone because everyone's engaged in their own battle. And no matter who actually said that, the point is still true, that you, you interact with people and they are not the ultimate enemy because there always is someone bigger that's behind everything. And when you read the story of Exodus, you're reminded that there is an evil presence that's behind the oppression that's going on. And so the battle is not against brother versus brother. It's always about who is opposing the way of God. The story of Exodus is about a God who is for his people being opposed by someone who is against the flourishing of his people. If we can go back to the text in Genesis, or excuse me, Exodus 1, the very first Exodus 1 slide that we had, the end of it, it talks about the Israelites, and it says in Exodus 1, this is uh, just the 1 through 8 would be great. Let's go to the one before. Um, there it is. At the end, it says, Therefore they set taskmasters over them to oppress them. They built supply cities. Get the last line. It says, But the more they oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. And that word in Exodus 1, they, they multiplied and spread. As you're reminded that this is the continuation of Genesis a astute reader, an astute Jewish person is going to hear that and go, we've heard that language before multiplying and spreading because it really points back to Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, we see that same language where God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then you fast forward to the later in Genesis, in Genesis 9, right after the flood, God says to Noah, be fruitful and multiply. And so Exodus starts, and you have the Israelites, and they're doing what God told them to do. Be fruitful and multiply, spread. One of the, the images behind that language is, is swarming. This is what you're called to do. We want you to flourish. But Pharaoh doesn't want that to happen. God causes people to be fruitful, to spread, to flourish. Jesus, years later, will, will double down on that, talk about living life abundantly. That is what God's desire for humanity is. But Pharaoh sets himself up as a deity who is oppressing that. And anytime something sets itself up against the flourishing and the spreading and the being fruitful of God's creation, God is opposed to that. Now, earlier this week, I um, clicked on a link, which if I wasn't doing sermon research, I would have been embarrassed that I clicked on it because the headline was, Father beats up daughter's crystal meth dealer. Now, someone of my stature typically would never click on that link or a link that says woman gets off her scooter to fight another woman in Walmart. Uh, but as a pastor, like it's important for me to research these things to know what's going on. So I clicked on this link that said father beats up daughter's crystal meth dealer <clears throat> solely for sermon preparation reasons. Now, let me tell you about this video, um, which we don't have, even though the elders are not here this morning, which I means I could get away with this one. But as you can imagine in this great grainy YouTube clip of someone with their phone recording their husband beating up their daughter's crystal meth dealer, it is just what it advertises as. Um, the character development is not stellar. Uh, the dialogue could be punched up a little bit. Um, but the basic point is you have a dad who sees his daughter getting crystal meth from a guy and decides to beat him up, put him in a headlock, drag him out of the house and inflict physical damage on him, which is not the kind of thing that I want to encourage anyone to do. Don't beat people up. That's not nice. 
But the imagery of a father beating up someone who's doing something to enslave his daughter to an addiction, I can kind of get behind that, right? Right? If someone was doing that to your daughter and you saw that, what would your response be? You wouldn't like that. Like if someone was, was ingraining your daughter into a way of life which you knew was destructive, was cancerous, would, would steal her life from her, would you not want to have that same response, right? That's what's going on in, Genesis, in Exodus. God has told his Israelites in Genesis, this is what I want my people to be like. I want you to have this life that's abundant. I want you to be fruitful. I want you to live this great life. And then Pharaoh sets himself up as the person opposing that. And anytime something sets itself up against God's people living the life they were supposed to live, God is against that. God is for flourishing. God is for your flourishing. And anything in your life that sets yourself up against that and prevents you from living that is against the will of God. God is for you and your flourishing. And anything that prevents you from experiencing that is against God. Because God is for you. And no matter if it's Pharaoh or it's some addiction or it's some choice that you want to make, God is against those things even today. Wendy Plump is a writer for the New York Times, and she wrote a piece about adultery and faithfulness years ago in the New York Times, which is, is stuck with me. And she wrote this piece as someone who both had been cheated on and also as someone who has cheated on her significant other. And she writes this piece about what it's like after that's happened and what it's like with her life in comparison to her parents who have been faithful for decades. And this is what uh, Wendy Plump wrote in the New York Times years ago. She wrote this. She said, I look at my parents and at how much simpler their lives are at the age of 75. Mostly because they haven't marred the landscape with grand scale deceit. They have this marriage of 50 some years behind them and it's a monument to success. A few weeks or months of illicit passion could not hold a candle to it. If you imagine yourself in such a situation, where would you fit an affair in neatly? If you were 75, which would you rather have? Years of steady, if occasionally strained devotion, or something that looks a little bit like the Iraqi city of Fallujah, cratered with plenty artillery? So Wendy Plump is asking the question, what, what do you want? Do you want this marriage of 50 years that's strained at some points or moments it might be bored, at moments it might not be exciting? Or do you want something like her own experience that seems more like a war-torn city because of a few months of illicit passion? And you hear in the Bible over and over again, like, don't commit adultery. That seems to be a big one. It made the top 10 in the Old Testament even. And some might misconstrue that and think, well, God is just against you having sexual encounters or fun or something that seems like a good time. Or God is against you being happy. But I think what you hear Wendy Plump saying in the New York Times is that I look back on my own story and compare it to my parents' story of faithfulness. And there's no comparison. Like, it's an easy choice. One is full of life and fidelity and trust, and the other is like this war-torn city. 
And the reason God is against adultery is not because God doesn't want you to have fun or God doesn't want you to enjoy sex. It's because God wants what's best for you. God is always about your flourishing, and that is not what flourishing looks like. No matter how much fun it might seem like for a little while, and no matter how much excitement it puts in your bones in the morning to wake up, oh yeah, I'm having an affair, this is so much fun. I haven't felt this way since I was in college or a teenager. This seems great. It is not life. The reason God is against that is because God is against anything that sets itself up against your flourishing. God has always been that way. got an email from a friend a few weeks ago who was uh, asking me about uh, cremation and if it was all right to... Uh, to cremate someone, he comes from a Catholic background, or still is Catholic, and uh, just trying to figure out, you know, what, what do you Protestants say about this kind of stuff? And and the more I asked, the more I, I found out this heartbreaking story about uh, my friend and his um, his brother. Uh, his brother had kind of uh, separated himself from the family, and they were not really close, so they didn't really understand what was going on these last uh, these last weeks and months of this guy's life, but as they started to uncover the story, his brother um, had been drinking himself to death for, for years, and they knew that. They just didn't know how bad it was. At the end of his life, despite plenty of doctor's warnings, he continued to drink and drink and drink. Uh, his feet were swollen. His, his intestines were just a mess, and he was literally living in a van until he died in his 50s. My friend thought that his, uh, his brother had depression. And instead of dealing with depression, uh, with treatment or, or proper medication, he was just using drinking as a way to, to, to deal with that. And sometimes people think about God as like God is against drinking, which is like you, you can't read like the Bible and John's gospel, like the first miracle Jesus does, there's a party, people have been drinking for a while, they run out of wine, and Jesus makes more wine after most of the guests are a little bit inebriated, okay? It's, it's really hard to go, well, that was non-alcoholic grape juice. What were they, were they taking acid or something? Or, okay, whatever. Um, I don't understand how they're inebriated then. But, like, people talk about, like, God is against alcohol and, and getting drunk. Okay. What God is against is people not dealing with the serious issues they have. Depression is not a sin to struggle with depression. It's not a sin to have mental health issues. What is a sin is when you don't deal with that monster properly and you use alcohol as your way to self-medicate. When you are drinking yourself to death, that is not flourishing. That is not life as God intended. For you to drink yourself to death and your feet get swollen and you're living in a van is not how God intends you to live. That is not flourishing. And God is always against anything that prevents you from flourishing. God has always been that way and God always will continue to be that way. The Bible talks over and over again about money and material possessions. Jesus has all these harsh statements about money and possessions. Jesus says, don't store it for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but store it for yourselves treasure in heaven where, where that doesn't happen. Jesus says, you can't serve two masters. You will love the one and hate the other. You can't serve God and money. Jesus says, it's harder for a rich man to enter the eye of a needle than to get into heaven. Like, it's impossible to be materialistic and get into heaven is almost what Jesus is saying. And you hear Jesus talk about all the terrible things about money, and you go, what, what, does Jesus not want us to appreciate nice things? Is Jesus against us having clothes and houses and cars? And no, it's not that. It's that Jesus knows our propensity 
to not just own things, but to find the things that we quote unquote own to actually be the things that own us. And we start building our entire lives around accruing more things and keeping things and making payments on things which we don't need. And Jesus is not wanting us to not enjoy life. Jesus wants us to enjoy life. But what happens is material things don't give life. They often take life from us. Well, you can't spend time with your family because I got to pick up an extra shift and I got to do more here and more there to pay this off. And God's going, don't chase after stuff that doesn't matter because that is not life. God has always been about human flourishing and that has been the same back then as it is today. And God sets himself up against anything. Whether it's Pharaoh or an addiction to alcohol or material possessions or an affair that sets itself up against your flourishing. God is for you living life abundantly. Now the problem whenever you're a pastor and you start talking this way and you say God is for you having an abundant life and flourishing and enjoying creation is that it seems to be easy for people in my profession to say that and the next thing you know... One day you're talking about how God wants you to flourish, and next thing you know, you're setting up a Kickstarter campaign online so you can afford a $65 million jet for your ministry, right? And you're saying, like, well, I'm a preacher. I should drive the same car that Pete did. He drives in his music videos. Like, it's just like, it's like a slippery slope. Like, next thing you know, be abundant. Next thing you know, hey, guys, I need a Rolls Royce. Like, it's like, it seems to easily go that direction. And no matter how perverted that is, and that is perverted. It doesn't change the fact that God is for your flourishing. God wants you to have this abundant life. And anything that's preventing that is against the will of God. And that's the story of the Exodus. God has told the Israelites, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. They are doing just what God's will is for them. And Pharaoh sets himself up as the deity who doesn't want their flourishing, but wants his own flourishing at their expense. And so therefore, God is against that deity. So choose wisely where you're going and choose wisely who you are casting your lots with. There are those... Um, midwives that uh, we referenced earlier and side note when we go through the book of Exodus, i can't read the entire like every chapter every sunday and so there are gonna be things that i'm not gonna cover which i would encourage you to read the book of Exodus during the week otherwise i'm gonna have to read like a long set section of text and you're just gonna go like this every sunday morning okay so side note just file that away i encourage you to do that um but in the story the israelites have been fruitful, they're multiplying. Pharaoh says to the midwives, get rid of all the babies that are boys. And the midwives come back and say, no, 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 that's not what's happening. And the interesting thing about the backstory is you have these two midwives and one's name is like girl and one is beautiful. And they're probably the midwives who are over all the other midwives in Egypt, or at least for the Israelites. And God tells them, or, or Pharaoh tells them to get rid of all the boys, but they don't do it for some reason. And we don't know exactly why they don't do it. But they have this intuition that killing little babies isn't the right thing to do. And they decide that they're going to go with the Israelite God instead of the Egyptian God, which is Pharaoh. And one of the, the backstories that people assume is going on with these, these midwives is that they chose to be a midwife because they couldn't have their own kids. They didn't have their own kids, so they help other women give birth to kids. That's one of the assumptions. Which makes it even more interesting because as soon as they are faithful to God, what happens? God blesses them with families, and they start to be fruitful and multiply. These women who many assume to be barren themselves choose the way of God, and the result is they themselves start being fruitful 
and multiplying two. And it's almost a reminder that whichever side you choose, you're going to have the fruit, the results of that side. And if you choose the way of oppression, the fruit of that will probably just be more oppression for you. But you choose the side of being fruitful and multiplying and following the life of abundance and flourishing of God, then what happens in your life is you will probably end up flourishing too. So the encouragement is choose the right side. Choose the God who says, I am for your flourishing. It was the same back then as today. God is always on the side of you. So choose the right side. I'm going to invite Meredith to come up now. In a second, we're going to make our way to these tables. And we're going to celebrate the way of Jesus. We're going to gather on these tables as a community, as friends and family, who have been bonded together by the way of Jesus. And we are going to be reminded of what Jesus has done for us, and we are going to participate in the life that we have because of that. The reason we have life and we have it abundantly is because of the person of Jesus, who displayed it for us and gave it to us. And we are going to celebrate that life in this tiny meal around these little tables in which we as a family will celebrate the life we have in Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the good news of Jesus. And we thank you for the life that he gives us. And we thank you for the life that we can have today. And for those of us who feel like we are the Israelites and we are stuck in our oppression, and when there is a Pharaoh in our life today, maybe it is an addiction, maybe it's a relationship that we are in, maybe it's a pursuit that we are after, that ultimately is not giving us more life, but is taking life from us. I pray that you would give us eyes to see how you continue to draw people out of oppression. And for those of us who feel like we have our own Pharaoh who is oppressing us today, I pray that you would continue to be the God of Moses who sets the captive free. And as we go to this table and we taste and see that you are good, Would you lead us into a better way of life? We pray this in your name. Amen.